BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, do vaccine mandates maybe make things worse? You will soon have to show proof of full vaccination if you want to go almost anywhere indoors in the city. 56% of Americans strongly or somewhat support vaccination mandates, and the divide is largely political. A lot of restaurant owners say this puts them in an impossible position. Because we know that this will encourage a lot more vaccination. We've seen it already. Just over 50% of the United States is fully vaccinated against COVID-19 at this point. So to many people, vaccine mandates in cities like New York and San Francisco seem like the best move to get people vaccinated and keep the virus at bay. I'm Jane Koston, and I get why these mandates are coming into play. I'm fully vaccinated. I want more people to get fully vaccinated. So I can understand how making spaces available only to people who are fully vaccinated might make people get, you know, vaccinated. But I also don't think these mandates are going to solve low vaccination rates. In fact, I think they could actively turn some people off, especially when getting vaccinated has a lot more to do with access and context than it does trying to make you, a vaccinated person, mad. Like, can you take two days off work if you have symptoms post-vaccine? Or even, do you trust the medical establishment giving you the vaccine if you've had a rough time with doctors before? Today, I'm talking with two guests about the pros and cons of mandates. Angie Rasmussen is a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, VIDO, at the University of Saskatchewan. And Marcella Tillett is the Vice President of Programs and Partnerships at the Brooklyn Community Foundation, an organization that's helping locals get vaccinated. I want to start out by asking Angie what is a vaccine mandate? A vaccine mandate is just a requirement that you get a vaccine in order to do something. That might be uh, something like travel internationally, and that's a vaccine mandate for which there's a lot of precedence. There's a yellow card that the WHO provides that was originally to prove your yellow fever vaccination status to travel internationally. And now that yellow card is used to prove uh, vaccination status for any number of different vaccines. And then there's school vaccine mandates. Those also have quite a lot of precedent. This is basically the requirement that students get a particular type of vaccine before being allowed to enter uh, class um, in person. You can get a medical exemption for a school vaccine mandate. You can get a religious exemption or a philosophical exemption. These are really implemented differently in different places. What we're also seeing now are some really new types of vaccine mandates where you are going to be required to get vaccines potentially to go to restaurants, to go to businesses, to go to movie theaters. And that really isn't as precedented. Um, we've never had to prove that, you know, you've had your MMR measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine to go see a movie. Right. 
And you think that, Angie, that this is a generally a positive idea. In what ways do you think that is useful? You know, I I was born in the late 70s. I didn't grow up with all of my classmates, you know, dealing with polio outbreaks and things like that. But one of the reasons that I didn't was because of vaccine mandates and vaccine requirements. Overall, this has had historically a really net positive result for public health. The reason for that is that vaccine mandates, especially for things that are essential, like going to school, really do encourage people to get immunized. And there's been a lot of focus during this pandemic on the individual benefits of vaccination, but really vaccines are their most powerful at the population level. One thing people need to understand is that a majority vaccinated population is going to have less disease transmission. That is how you will end the pandemic sustainably for good. Now, where I have some buts um, is people have been focusing a lot on unvaccinated people and talking about them as though all of them are unvaccinated by choice. And that is just simply not the case. Essential workers, for example, who may not be able to take time off of work should they have side effects from their vaccine, may not get vaccinated because they can't afford to. And people who can't, you know, get childcare, people who don't have transportation. And also, I should add, too, that it's not always easy for people to prove that they've been vaccinated. You know, we have a paper card, but what happens if you lose that card? A vaccine mandate is no good if the vaccine itself is punitive for the people who you want to get it. Marcella, I saw you nodding to some of the concerns about folks who aren't getting vaccinated. And I think that too often we've had conversations about people who are unvaccinated that I think are more focused on what I would determine to be vaccine resistant, like the people who were like, no way, no how, never going to do it, that type of resistance, where I would say that a lot of folks might be vaccine hesitant. What are your concerns, Marcella, about mandates, especially because of the work that you do on vaccination? Yeah, so I was nodding uh, aggressively to Angie's comments because I think the equity perspective, when we look at mandates, we have to put a lens of how does this impact different demographic groups, racially, gender, income, type of work, neighborhood, right? We have to have a more nuanced assessment of how we're rolling out public health interventions. And at Brooklyn Community Foundation, we work with a network of nonprofit organizations throughout the borough of Brooklyn here in New York City, where they're taking all sorts of different approaches to engaging with community members to understand what are those barriers, empathize with whatever the source of that hesitation is, I think the introduction of a mandate in New York City, as we're seeing now, is an interesting additional element to the conversation. Because I think the other issue that we're not talking about is who enforces these mandates? We saw the situation that emerged when we had essential workers who became enforcers of mask mandates and had to succumb to all matters of verbal and sometimes physical violence. Right. There have been several people who were killed attempting to enforce mask mandates. I think that's a really good point. The reason that I've been thinking about this the last couple of days is really hearing about the vaccine mandate in New York City, hearing that it's going to be on the business owners and the people operating those businesses to enforce those mandates. And if they don't, they can actually be punished. 
and I think that just means fines, but you know, that, that can be a huge hurdle for especially a small business owner to, to try to overcome. I haven't worked uh, in an essential worker role. I was a cocktail waitress way back when and things like that, but I haven't done that in a long time. I can't even imagine though how I would enforce that. If somebody came into the bar that I worked in 20 years ago and ordered a drink and I was required to ask them for proof of vaccination and then make them leave if they couldn't show it to me to my satisfaction. I mean, how are those employees going to be trained to enforce that? In theory, it's a good idea, but it really is, I think, a larger issue that everybody has to buy into. Yes, in theory, it is a good idea to incentivize or, you know, have other you know negative reinforcement for people adopting this new practice of using this biomedical intervention as prevention in addition to masking and social distancing and those other things. But you're missing the middle. You're missing all of the other pieces of the puzzle that you have to take into consideration. When you think about implementation, there's a whole conversation about the very simple CDC vaccination cards that can honestly be reproduced. It's cardstock and it's you can print one out. So what is a business owner supposed to do if they suspect it is counterfeit, right? This isn't the same as checking a license for for drinking alcohol. It's a there, And we still have people still get fake IDs for that too. Like Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well and importantly, bartenders and servers, again depending on the state, are actually trained and required to go through like a fake ID spotting class. And you're actually trained too on how to refuse service to people. Um, how to abide by the alcohol laws to make sure that you're not over-serving or serving minors. And in this case, it doesn't look like there's going to be any sort of training, at least in New York City. Yeah. It's customers, but it's also your staff. There's also the conversation about how vaccination mandates are being introduced in different workplaces, right? I think it's very ironic if a business that does not provide adequate coverage for paid time off for them to mandate a vaccination for their workers. You know, I think there's an equity and access and just like a human rights conversation to be had about how people are enabled to take care of themselves and their health and their family. The conversations that we have now are very much ones that are rooted in blame and shame instead of wellness. We have just pointed out a number of really important issues with a hypothetical vaccine mandate. Given all of this, does it seem like a good idea right now to have vaccine mandates, or is this an idea that seems good in theory but might not actually be practical? I think it's a very good idea for some things. For example, again, some schools, um, they are not requiring people to come back to campus if they don't want to. So you don't have to get a vaccine and you can still take classes. So I think that it is wise to provide options for people. There needs to be provisions for people who can't get vaccines. There needs to be a system of allowing people to get exemptions fairly. We still don't really know what are some contraindications for getting mRNA vaccines or for getting Johnson & Johnson. We know some of them. Vaccine mandates are good if they incentivize people to get vaccinated, but also provide options for people to comply with them. I think that that's that's an interesting point here, because if the goal here is to get people vaccinated, states with a hard mandate tend to see a higher number of people vaccinated. So if you have a harder mandate, 
Wouldn't that increase vaccination rates based on the argument that many people who aren't vaccinated simply aren't vaccinated yet? What do you think, Marcella? I I don't agree with that. I think these hard mandates will get us to a certain point because there are some people who are hesitant and it is a yet, right? We've heard from folks that they have a belief that the vaccination was created too quickly. Some of those folks, you can talk to them about pre-existing vaccinations and other scientific knowledge that helped to inform the development. And that could persuade them to, to make the move sooner rather than later. With others, they are just going to wait. I don't know what they're waiting for. They might not even know what they're waiting for, but there's something in them that's telling them not yet. I think what is difficult for many people is that we are living through something that is in development, right? And so information is changing. You have agencies and individual people who might be seen as or might assert themselves as authorities in this area. And they have historically, like if we look at the 18-month period, contradicted themselves in ways, right? We started in New York City with, you know, you can wrap a t-shirt around your face and if you can't get a mask because it was difficult to find masks, right? And so to then hear new information, it can feel to an individual like, okay, these folks who are giving me these mandates and these folks that are supposed to be the experts don't know what they're doing. So if you were wrong then, you might be wrong about this and I'm not sure and I don't feel comfortable taking your advice if it might change in a few months, right? The nonprofit organizations we work with, they come from that place of empathy and understanding why someone might feel that way. And then they come with accurate information about what we know now, how the vaccinations were developed and Some of those folks will move, right? Enough conversations from people they trust, from organizations in their community that didn't just come to talk to them about a vaccine, but nine months ago, they checked on them and their families and made sure they had food and made sure that the children were supported in virtual learning. And that idea of a credible messenger isn't just about the message, it's about the relationship. We live in communities. We live relational lives, right? And a lot of good can come from that. We can help each other through these difficult moments. A mandate has a place in that, but the implementation is critical and the infrastructure is critical. And we we just don't have that at this stage. Angie, what's your perspective on COVID messaging over the past year? Because I, I tend to be extremely sympathetic to the scientific community on this particular issue. And I'll tell you why. Science is hard. Science is really hard to explain to other people. It is inherently difficult to basically build the plane you're flying while explaining how it's working to other people who might be distrustful of you. And I think we've seen that time and time again with public health messaging. There have been examples of scientists attempting to learn about something, then tell people about the thing and then realizing, oh, no, 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 that's not what it's from. That's not how it happens. That's not who is vulnerable to it. Then they have to shift that messaging. So I'm I'm inherently sympathetic to that. But how do you think that that messaging and the shifting in messaging of masks aren't useful to masks are useful? That is confusing to many people. What do you think about that messaging, Angie? You know, I I think about this all the time because back in, you know, April 2020, I was, you know, tweeting about how I didn't think masks were necessary. And I completely obviously changed my mind on that. I think it's really important for scientists to communicate 
and to let people see the decision-making process as it occurs. Um, I think that it is really helpful for people to understand that science is a process. It is not the instantaneous, you know, the light bulb goes off and you suddenly have realized an unimpeachable truth. Scientists are wrong all the time, and it's only when you can't prove yourself wrong that you conclude that you must be onto something and you're right. Even for viruses that are well-studied, that we've known about for a long time, influenza, for example, there are still huge unknowns. You know, that's why we all still have jobs in the virology community. We're not going to figure everything out about all the viruses in my lifetime or my kids' lifetimes or their kids' lifetimes or really ever. I mean, there's just too much information out there. Somebody who wants to know the scientific underpinnings of how a vaccine works will probably benefit a lot from talking to me. But, you know, I mean, somebody who who just doesn't want to hear about it anymore, they just want to get back to their normal life, they're not probably going to respond as well to a conversation with me. And that's why you know, the relationship, as Marcella was saying, is so crucial to these conversations that are going to win hearts and minds. One of the biggest mistakes about the messaging and the policy is that it really treats unvaccinated people as sort of one monolithic group that all think the same things. And, you know, there's differences even with people who are reluctant to get vaccines because they've heard misinformation. Some people have heard that, you know, the vaccines will ruin your immune system. Actually, one of my mother's friends texted me the other day to make sure that wasn't true. She's very pro-vaccine. She still was like, is this, I just wanted to run this by you because it was pretty scary. So we really need to to make sure that our messaging is nuanced. And the, the challenge here, I think, is that that means a lot of one-on-one conversations. And that means recruiting a lot of people to have those conversations. So somebody who is distrustful of scientists might, you know, trust their church leader or, you know, a leader of a community group that they're a part of. We need to get those people on board, too. It's it's a huge messaging challenge. Yeah. I mean, to that point, Angie, something we've seen in Brooklyn is a number of community-based organizations and houses of faith having those powerful messengers bring along medical professionals, right? Because they can rally people, they can motivate, they have that trust. But when those very specific questions come, you really do need a medical professional or someone who can kind of break down the science and reassure. But having that person side by side with the figure that you know is very effective. Marcella, when you talk to people in Brooklyn who are parts of different communities, because something that I think is interesting is how I am disposed to trust scientists When a vaccine was introduced, I was like, I will go get the vaccine. I recognize that that is not a mindset that many people come from. I have had good interactions personally with medical establishment. Um, I find, for instance, going to the dentist very relaxing. Many people do not have that. I don't don't share that. Me neither. Not at all. (laughs) But I am curious, Marcella, based on your work, what are the reasons people are saying that they're not getting vaccinated? I'm very curious as to what you are hearing on the ground. Yeah. And, and, and I'll be clear that I'll give you some examples from my personal life and some of the other examples I'll, I'll take from some of the organizations we work with who work directly with people. And I think you touch on a really important point. Some of the um, kind of medical incidents in our history that have pointed to either discrimination of a particular group of people or medical violence 
towards a particular group of people based on sexual orientation, race, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And something that I think it's still coming up a lot in these conversations is Tuskegee. Though there are a lot of people, a lot of Black people who know about the Tuskegee experiment and um, may have people in their families that were impacted by that. And so that is the root of some of their issues with the, the medical field. You don't have to look back so far to meet people who are Black or brown who are not treated well when they go to the hospital who are not believed, and we've seen many studies about, in particular, Black women and, and Black people and reports of their pain and how that's received by medical professionals. Right. We see the outcomes of maternal and infant mortality and morbidity for Black women. And so th- that is happening now. That is an experience that people have right now. And that can. And then they be... are asked to get a vaccine. They may have been disbelieved about their pain. Right. You can't disconnect they may that have from lost a baby yes. because they weren't believed when they were dealing with a hemorrhage. And then they're asked, like, go get a vaccine. Or they may just be disrespected when they go to the clinic, right? And so anything that has to do with healthcare, I, I personally know people who want to try it on their own first. If there are ways that I can prevent getting sick or, you know, needing healthcare, I'm going to do everything I can do on my side because I don't want to have to go to the hospital because I believe if I have to go to the hospital, I will not be treated well. I will not get quality services. I will not be believed. It will be an unpleasant experience all around. I think that's why it's really important that we have very accessible vaccination sites, ones that pop up in their communities. Again, ones that are staffed by people that look like them, who as a physician or as a nurse will tell them, yes, I understand that you are not always treated well, or, you know, there is kind of a norm in some Black communities that the last place you want to go is to a hospital because you're not coming home, right? And so we can't pretend like those things don't exist. What we can't do is just say, you know, that's ridiculous, you're ill-informed, you're irresponsible, and you're dangerous, and so we're just going to discard you and try to strong-arm you into getting a vaccine. Otherwise, you can't participate in society. Hi, this is Dawn from Fort Worth, Texas. The thing that I find myself arguing about is whether to move to a majority minority neighborhood. As a white woman married to a white man, I have lots of conflicting thoughts around if I'm contributing to gentrification or if it's just a desire to be a part of a more diverse community. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Don. Uh, yeah, that's a complicated question, one that I've dealt with myself living in Washington, D.C., because the answer is both. Yeah, you want to live in a diverse community. So do I. And yeah, you're contributing to gentrification, and so am I. But fortunately, we're going to be doing some upcoming episodes on housing, gentrification, YIMBYs, and NIMBYs, including my old friend Matthew Iglesias. So stay tuned, because this is really not a question I can answer. It's one I'm dealing with myself. What are you arguing about with your family, your friends, your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. 
and we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com NYT. That's netsuite.com NYT. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. I'm curious for you, Angie, based on the work that you've done, how do you think that COVID differs from other illnesses in terms of how we view it as either something you should get vaccinated against or something that you could hypothetically hold off with clean living and a good diet? How do you think COVID differs from that or does it in your view? COVID differs a lot. Um, I mean, COVID, so this is one of, I think, the hardest things to communicate to people as a scientist. COVID, of course, has some things in common with other viruses. It's a respiratory virus. Respiratory viruses, like influenza, like common cold viruses, including other coronaviruses, infect the respiratory tract. In many people, they cause mild illness. In a smaller number of people, they cause more severe illness. But COVID is also nothing like those other viruses because, for starters, we haven't seen the consequences of the entire world basically getting infected with those other viruses in many cases. We know what happens when a lot of people get infected with seasonal influenza. We know roughly during a flu season how many people are going to die from that. I think we're starting to appreciate that you know, death is not the only negative consequence of having a viral infection for many people. But I think, you know, it's really tough to communicate this to people because, first of all, a lot of people think, and often this, this is really dependent on the community and, unfortunately, really dependent sometimes on people's political beliefs, but they really think sometimes that they are for sure 100% in that group of people that is not going to get sick and die from this. And I don't think that many of those people do understand that maybe they're not going to die. But, you know, you don't just get off of a ventilator and go back to living your life the way that you were living it before you got sick. Also, because we don't know a lot about some of the long-term consequences. Long COVID is definitely a thing. And this, I think, really, really impacts a lot of people because long COVID patients do tend to be women They tend to be similar to chronic fatigue syndrome patients in that they're often difficult to diagnose. They're often disbelieved by their medical providers. And so there's, you know, a whole community of patients that we don't really understand who have this huge 
variety of different long-term conditions that can be really, really debilitating. We've seen entire groups of people basically saying that their right to get COVID is like an unimpeachable freedom that they have and that we should all just, you know, deal with that. And what's different about COVID, it's not that it's the most deadly virus. And you know what? Thank God. Because if this had the mortality rate of SARS Classic or MERS coronavirus, we'd be seeing a lot more dead people. But SARS coronavirus, too, is particularly challenging just because of the numbers game. It infects a lot of people. It's very transmissible. It was very transmissible to begin with. And now the Delta variant is even more transmissible than that. I, I think that, you know, people are all over the map with how they perceive the risk of COVID. This gets even worse when you start talking about schools and vaccinating kids. And essentially, there was a, a group of scientists who I don't have much respect for who wrote a document called the Great Barrington Declaration that essentially argued that young people should just let it rip through the population and, and we'll get to herd immunity that way and we'll somehow magically shield the vulnerable. Well, the vulnerable is at least probably half of the U.S. population, if you count all the different risk factors. It's not just age. So how do you decide, you know, which life is worth saving? And I think that competent public health people uh, would say that all lives are worth saving. And that's why you need to have a different approach for each community. Before we end, I'm interested in talking about what happens next. And I am curious for you, Marcella, because I know Angie brought up the flu and less than half of the adults in the United States get the flu shot. And, and I'll make an admission here. I've never gotten the flu shot. What makes the COVID vaccine different from a flu shot? That is such a good question. Um, since you were so brave in disclosing that, I will also share that I have never had a flu shot. And my mother was a nurse. You know, I think we have lived with the flu for a very long time, and we're two examples of how, you know, every year we see every local pharmacy pop up with, it's time to get your flu shot. And some people say, you know, that message is not for me because that is not something I do. Personally, with COVID, you know, I wasn't the first person in line to get vaccinated, but I did. And I think for some people, it is about this becoming part of our everyday life, right? It has landed on us in 2020 and it's continued to be with us. At some point, hopefully, it's going to kind of exist as one of these viruses that just exists along with us as we live our lives, like the flu. And I don't know how we necessarily get there, but I do think that you're going to have people that fall on either side of the coin of I'm someone who vaccinates every year. You know, we're talking about boosters and the introduction of boosters for people who've been vaccinated. I would not say it's a foregone conclusion that everybody that's been vaccinated will line back up to get a booster. Again, if the message was, and, you know, we're living with science, science is dynamic, it's changing, we're learning, you know, we have to accept that. That is true. And the way people experience, okay, well, you told me to go get vaccinated. I went and got vaccinated and now you're telling me I need to get another shot and you're telling me that possibly I'm going to have to line up and get these shots on somewhat of a regular basis. That's not what I signed up for. I do think that that's going to be a hurdle we're going to have to face. Yeah, so 
I get my flu shot every year. (laughs) Um, Part of the reason for that is actually when I was a kid, I was hospitalized with influenza. And the one time when I was in my 20s, I had influenza. I didn't, I wasn't hospitalized with it, but I was so sick. And it was so much worse than just having a cold that I said, well, I, I don't want to deal with this. It also makes it easier for me because where I work, you know, there's flu shots all over the place and it's very easy for me to get a flu shot. I don't even have to go to the pharmacy. You know, it's true that many people don't get severe flu. Part of the reason for that, and this is one thing that's very different from the COVID vaccine, we all have prior immunity to influenza because we've all been exposed to influenza viruses throughout our lives, whether we get flu shots or not. So that pre-existing immunity that will provide some protection against disease severity, um, depending on how good, you know, how much cross-reactive immunity you have. But I think that, you know, part of the problem with the booster thing, and, you know, I have to lay some of this at the feet of these pharmaceutical executives who engage in wishful thinking every time they have an investor call and say that we're going to start needing boosters every six months. I think that that's incredibly unlikely. This is not influenza. The reason why we need an influenza shot every year is because there's a bunch of different influenza viruses circulating. We do have variants of concern. They are a little bit different, but essentially all SARS coronavirus 2 is SARS coronavirus 2. We might need boosters at at different intervals, but they're not going to be as as close together as every 6 months. That to me is just ridiculous. And it also is a little bit obscene just because right now in the U.S., we have doses expiring on shelves, so I don't have a problem with boosters, but we haven't done our share in terms of making people around the world get vaccinated. And the definition of a pandemic is an epidemic that's occurring on multiple continents. So by definition, it does impact the entire world. We can keep vaccinating and boosting the American people, but this isn't going to be over until we get vaccines out to the entire world. Right now, the data shows the vaccines are actually holding up very well at protecting against severe disease and hospitalization and death caused by Delta. But that actually gets me to my last question, which, Marcella, given the timeline of the virus, what should we be doing to encourage as many people as possible to get vaccinated? And that I, I always say this whenever we talk about this. If you are listening to this podcast right now and you are not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. But what should we be doing to get as many shots in the arms as possible? Yeah, you know, I think the the community based approach is most effective at this stage because if you just needed a bulletin to get vaccinated, you're already vaccinated. We have community organizations here in Brooklyn that run pantry services. And they're giving vaccine messages to people who come to collect food every week in the pantry. So we are seeing a slow increase in vaccinations in different demographics. But there has been an increase overall in Brooklyn in vaccinations. We've talked about a lot of the problems with mandates. But at a baseline level, do you think mandates could be a part of that effort to get as many people to get vaccinated as possible? So I, I absolutely do, um, provided, uh, again, that they they sort of meet the criteria that we were talking about earlier. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to really struggle to both enforce mandates like that and to comply with them. And while we can say, oh, you don't have to go to a bar, you don't have to go to a restaurant, you don't have to go to a movie theater, yeah, you don't. But, I mean, it 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 is not a great thing if we have whole 
communities that are being excluded from our lives. Right. A bifurcated society. And I mean, you can make a conservative argument, too, that that's a real economic problem as well. People who do not want to get vaccinated are not going to stop gathering. Right. They won't gather at that movie theater. They won't gather at that particular restaurant or bar that's checking them, but they will continue. There's going to be, and I think we saw this during the pandemic, underground parties, underground gatherings. You know, people did not stop. And I think even there was this underbelly, some of it because, you know, small businesses were closed and some business owners, you know, really saw that their incomes and revenue streams were strangled. And I think some people started to have these gatherings and others that they were just collections of people who, for mental health reasons, for other reasons, they needed to be with other people and they needed to share that space. We have to be prepared for that. So thinking through the implications of a mandate like this, what do we do when this public health strategy leads to other social phenomenon that then you have to figure out how to address. This has been such a helpful conversation, and I I really appreciate both of your time. Marcella, Angie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been great. It's my pleasure, Jane. Marcella Tillett is the Vice President of Programs and Partnerships at the Brooklyn Community Foundation. Angie Rasmussen is a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, VIDO, at the University of Saskatchewan. Vaccine mandates can vary between cities. Sometimes you only need one dose, and sometimes you'll need to be fully vaxxed. So you'll have to check what your city health department's requirements are. Some of the stuff I read in preparation for this episode included an article from Quartz titled, Do Mandatory Vaccines Violate Human Rights? And a piece from The Atlantic entitled, Everybody I Know is Pissed Off about how Republicans and Democrats feel about vaccine mandates. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Alison Brujic, Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Sarah Geis. With original music and sound designed by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. 